This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, earlier today, the U.S. 30-year yields are closing in on their lowest level as concerns grow over the impact of the escalating trade war and global economic growth and as policymakers around the world step in to provide support. To get the latest on what we're seeing in the Treasury market, we welcome Liz Coppo McCormick. She is a Bond and FX reporter for Bloomberg News joining us on the phone. Liz, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a wild day in the financial markets, including the Treasury markets. Kind of what are you seeing in the Treasury markets right now? What are you, what are you learning? Well, it has been a wild day. No one's getting like a calm summer for by any means. But so, like you mentioned there, you know, we had a, a trifecta of central banks overnight ease. You know, some very much a surprise. We had weak data in Germany, and it was adding to this trade war that, as we all know, got a heightened boost last week with the new tariffs that President Trump threatened and the retaliation by China. So it's just the growing feeling that, you know, global growth is turning and central banks, you know, it's like a race to the bottom of more easing. And people feel like for sure the Federal Reserve will have to do more, probably more than Chairman Powell, you know, alluded to they were thinking last week just because inflation is just not hitting and there's just, you know, people are flying into the safety of government bonds, and that's what's driving the 30-year yield so low. So how do we read this as investors, Liz? Because there's so many stories on the Bloomberg uh, terminal, great coverage by our FX and rates and bond team, and how all of these signals that we're seeing in the global bond market are pointing increasingly to a global economic downturn. So how do we, how do you make sense of, okay, ignore that signal, but this signal, this means something? Oh, right. That's that's the hard thing. You know, someone was explaining to me, because I was talking to an investor this morning, that, yes, of course, and we know we look at yield curves, which many of them slices are inverted or very flat, which is a historically a recession warning. But there is like a backdrop that is ongoing and that has kept debt yields historically lower and is kind of giving fuel to this. There's a global savings glut, which Chairman Bernanke has talked about prior chairman, that there's so much money and not enough places. There's negative yields, $14 trillion abroad, so that po- any positive yield in the U.S. looks good. Even demographics, you know, we know we have an aging population, so more people are saving in fixed assets, and, and we have no inflation. So there's, there's all these fundamental reasons that even if, you know, maybe people are wrong in saying a recession's coming right away, but growth is slowing, and there's a lot of forces that should support demand for fixed income securities, which is keeping yields low. So, Liz, it's interesting. I, I certainly would not want to be Chairman Powell and the other members of the FOMC because it seems like I'm getting a lot of pressure to perhaps counteract against some of the negative issues of global trade uncertainty with my interest rate sets. So, you know, if I'm Chairman Powell and the other members, my data looks pretty decent. What do you think the Fed will do in the upcoming meetings? 
Well, yeah, yeah, that is a bind for the Fed, and and they have mentioned, and you know, that trade is one of those uncertainties that is creating headwinds. So I think, given that even since Chairman Powell spoke last week and they minute finished their meeting, the trade situation has not only got worse but much worse. You know, with with what I just laid out, and we have many firms like Goldman Sachs team came out this week and said. Now we don't see a trade deal between the U.S. and China happening until after the presidential election in 2020. And they kind of up to three, how many more cuts the Fed will do this year. So I think even if the Fed wants to say that, you know, unemployment, as we know, is extremely historically low in the U.S., there are some good signs. But these headwinds, and it it creates uncertainty for investors, which also hurts, you know, investor sentiment and investing. So I think the Fed is going to have to be compelled to focus more on these trade issues, which, in, you know, financial conditions are affected by these stock falling, and that's right. not good for the Fed. We're talking with Liz Kaplan McCormick, Bond and FX reporter. We do want to mention to all of our Bloomberg Radio listeners in the United States, you've been listening to a nationwide test of the emergency alert system, so we do want to bring that to your attention. Talking about uh, the rates market, the bond market, and what we've been seeing certainly uh, this week, certainly pick up steam, if you will, uh, and concerns about what's going to happen in the global economy. Liz, so I do wonder, too, how does – I know we do say that the Fed is independent, but mm-hmm. I do wonder about watching the tweets of Donald Trump. I monitor right. them like the rest of the world. Uh, you know, when he increasingly targets Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve, I mean, how that might be impacting policy. Yeah, it's it's not good. And we, we did have the four former Fed chairs mm-hmm. come out and do an op-ed and say this is not good. Um, the, you know, the, the central bank's independent – is very important, and it's one of the key things that, you know, has made the U.S. Treasury market the world's, you know, benchmark debt. But I think, I don't know, I don't want to get into conspiracy theories. No, I don't either. You know, but there are people who feel like it's not helping, and it's adding pressure on to Chairman Powell and the Fed um, with the the president with these constant tweets. Um, So they they keep saying they're independent and they're not being affected, but it's clouding, at least for traders and investors, wondering, is it in the the calculus now, which is more confusing to read. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Liz, thank you so much. Always appreciate your insight. And check out uh, the magazine and Bloomberg.com and also the Bloomberg Terminal for uh, more of uh, Liz's coverage uh, on the bond and FX uh, markets. I'm a traveling man made a lot of It's that time of the year for men, women, kids, everybody's, puppies, pets, everybody to travel. Uh, and we're keeping a watch, of course, uh, on the overall market picture, but we're also watching the travel industry because you've got a bunch of those companies, including Booking Holdings, TripAdvisor, they're going to report their earnings today after the close. Also, Cedar Fair, uh, SeaWorld already out this week. James Hardiman follows this group, the leisure industry. He's an analyst at Wedbush Securities, and he joins us on the phone from Cleveland, Ohio. James, nice to have you here with us. I am curious, when you look at and follow and track your industry, uh, and then pull into kind of what's happening on a macro level, uh, concerns about U.S.-China trade, uh, whether or not we're falling into recession. Um, how do these stocks normally perform in this kind of an environment and in an environment where there's more and more nervousness? Sure, and, and thanks for having me. Um, well, I, suffice it to say, and I cover a lot of uh, consumer discretionary stocks, highly discretionary stocks yeah. uh, more specifically. And so um, at the end of the day, Nobody has to have any of this stuff, right? And so 
Um, the macro concerns, right, the fear of a, of a pending recession, that is the biggest concern uh, across the board. Um, I would tell you, based on the numbers that we've seen so far, I think the North American consumer year-to-date has been fairly resilient. Um, I think the, the bigger factor that has maybe held back numbers is just we had a really wet uh, late spring, early summer uh, time period, and I, and I do think that that impacted sales of, of some of the discretionary stocks that I follow, uh, certainly as you think about amusement parks. Uh, but as we make our way into the, you know, further into the summer, uh, I think weather has normalized. I think numbers are, are generally getting better, at least um, for the North American consumer. I think Europe is a different matter um, from a macro perspective. And then, you know, as we get into some of the company specific uh, tariffs are a pretty big deal for the for the power sports names that I follow, the likes of, you know, Harley Davidson and Brunswick and Polaris, those, those types of names. Yeah, James, that's, those are names I wanted to spend a couple of minutes on because I think about, you know, Harley Davidson and Polaris and, again, some of those power sports names you mentioned. And I know the tariff issue uh, is material for them. Just give us a sense of how that's impacting those companies' performance. Oh, it's been a really big deal. So, you know, Harley has probably been the most high-profile name. Um, they famously, a little over a year ago, said that, um, given the, the European retaliatory tariffs, which are, again, in response to the 232 tariffs that, that the Trump administration put on steel and aluminum, um, that, that ultimately under that tariff regime that, we weren't, that they weren't going to be able to, to make any money on European motorcycles. So they are in the process of moving their production to Thailand, uh, the production of European motorcycles to be specific, all the stuff that's made in America, will uh that's sold in America, I should say, will be made in America. Uh but the European bikes are now going to be made in Thailand. Um and that was a, a pretty high profile move. They took a lot of flack from the from the president for that one, but they didn't really have much of a choice. Uh Polaris is the company that probably has the biggest exposure to China uh among the names that we follow. And it's been, you know, it's been a massive hit to their to their numbers this year. Um and so for a while I think a lot of people were hoping that that we would make some progress. Uh, with respect to uh, negotiations with the Chinese. Now, I think it's more on the, the exemption side, the hope that, you know, they can make a good enough argument uh, to the to the U.S. Trade Office that their products in particular shouldn't be hit as hard with, with some of these tariffs. Hey, just got about a minute left, James, and I'm just looking at some of the stocks. I mean, um, SeaWorld, uh, that company has had quite a bounce back, and we know it went through – some troubles over the last few years, but it's up about almost 37% this year. I'm assuming that's because it's a domestic play. And so when we think about U.S.-China trade, it's somewhat immune. Uh, is that the case? Although I do think about foreign travelers who, who go to SeaWorld. Sure. So the China issue is, is relatively insignificant to a company like SeaWorld. Europe does matter. And so to the extent that, that macro concerns in, in Europe have have raised their ugly head that, that, you know, I do think that affects them. But I think more than anything, um, they've been really successful in terms of turning around their business the last four or five quarters, much better attendance numbers. They've really cut a lot of costs out of their business. As we move forward, though, my, my concern for a company like SeaWorld is that they're competing in some key, in some key markets with the likes of Disney and Universal. Uh, and those companies have, have really stepped up their efforts, stepped up their investments, most notably with the recent opening of, of a big Star Wars attraction at, at Disneyland, and you know they're going to open a similar attraction at Disney World here by the end of the month. 
Um, James so Hardiman. If you're looking at SeaWorld, that's, that's certainly one that, that to keep in mind. James Hardiman, thanks so much for joining us. James is a managing director and leisure analyst at Wedbush Securities. Joining us on the phone from Cleveland, Ohio. Come together. Come together, certainly through MNA. For the first half of the year, MNA grew at 9% in value compared to the same period of 2018. To get a sense of what we might be seeing in the MNA market for the remainder of the year, looking forward, we welcome John Reese. John is head of global MNA at White and Case, joins us on the phone from New York. John, thanks so much for joining us. Let's just kind of recap a little bit, kind of what we saw globally and in the U.S. in terms of uh, MNA activity. Hi, Paul. Um, nice to speak to you. M&A has been very active for the first half of the year. Uh, a lot of big deals. A little less active from the number of deals, volume of deals. Um, it's the big deals that have dominated the landscape, and it's been focused more on the United States than it generally has been historically um, as compared to Asia and Europe at this point. Yeah, I was going to say, I looked at the MA function on the Bloomberg, and overall global deal flow I think it's about $2.9 trillion, uh, and we're down a little bit uh, more than 6% year over year um, compared with last year. So we are seeing people pull back. Your point is, though, the deals that are being done, they're bigger? Um, they, 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 the bigger deals are the high-profile deals, Carol. People right. focus on them. Um, they're still up. But overall, as you say, total volume is down a bit, and total number of deals is down substantially. Um, but again, it's still an interesting, active environment right now with a lot of clouds on the horizon, of course. Well, that is so true. And John, my first question I really wanted to ask you is how quiet is your world right now? Because with all this volatility, we were doing stories about how corporations and CEOs are kind of holding back on making decisions. So I'm curious, is, uh, it pretty quiet? No phones ringing off the hook there? It, um, it, it, it's a really good question. We, we've been very, very busy. That The real volatility, as you know, is very recent. People are almost a little bit hardened to the volatility, given, if you recall, last December, we were probably down 15%. We yeah. remain pretty busy. We remain pretty optimistic. Again, I, I think— But are people you know, pulling, you know, saying, okay, let's do it, or are they just kind of waiting? That they are, they are doing it, but— at the valuations there are, whenever there's a diligence hiccup or anything like that, people spend a lot more time thinking about it. But no, plenty of deals are still happening. So, John, what's really driving the deal market these days? Is it more uh, strategic deals or is it kind of more the financial driven private equity deals? Yeah, very good question. Uh, a fair amount of activity in both. And, and again, a lot of our experiences are anecdotal. We're probably seeing more activity on the strategic side than on the private equity side right now. So what kind of deals? And I'm curious what industries, uh, John, are you seeing some activity or do you anticipate we'll see more activity for the rest of 2019? I think, um, as, as, as you know, TMT remains very active. Technology remains active. I mean, in some respects, it, it's hard to know what you mean when you say technology, since <laughs> everything has a technology aspect to it. Um, we're seeing a fair amount of consumer. You know, retail is obviously big issue. Uh, big issues. Um, well, and, what do you make uh, of a story? Paul and I just talked about. For our New York audience, we talked about a story about how some retail landlords are figuring out a way to kind of securitize um, rents, right? right? And then kind of help out those struggling retailers. What do you think about that? 
I think it's it's one aspect of trying to help out retailers, which is a very difficult circumstance right now, as you well know. Um, they're trying lots of different things. Um, obviously, we are all in New York focused on Barney's right now and the fact that after all these years, there's not going to be much left on Barney's. Retail retail's is an issue on an ongoing basis. So, John, you know, I want to get a sense of the kind of the regulatory antitrust environment. You know, when the Trump administration came into office, I know, you know, we talked to a bunch of M&A bankers and they were like, oh, boy, here we go. We are off to the races. But since then, it, it's kind of been uneven. I think about the, how tough it was to get the AT&T Time Warner deal done, how tough the DOJ was there. What's your sense of kind of just the regulatory environment? I think the antitrust regulatory environment is really not significantly different than what it's been historically. There's some tough deals and people are pushing the envelope. I think the real issue is the CFIUS environment and the hostility that foreign investors from certain jurisdictions feel with respect to investing in the United States. The U.S. is still a very attractive environment for a lot of countries. It's very, very unattractive right now for Asia. Right. And, of course, Sivius, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, basically deciding what kinds of foreign investors can do deals in the U.S. And depending on kind of the mood and the relationship between the United States and and other countries uh, can really determine whether or not deals get through. Um, Investors are listening, uh, John. I think they're watching the market environment of this week. Uh, You know, so far we've had, what, our biggest – uh, drop decline in stocks uh, so far in 2019. We've seen a bounce back today. Um, how do you see it from an M&A perspective? Are there areas you think investors should be watching for more consolidation or for, or for more deal flow in particular? You talked about some of it uh, before, but I'm just curious in particular. Is there anybody- I, 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 I think the biggest question, I think everybody knows a recession is going to be coming at some point in time and that there's going to be price drops and nobody knows when it is. All we can say is that compared to whenever I spoke to you last time, a month or two or three months ago, we're that much closer to it happening. And you do feel a sense of what's happened over the last few days when combined with really the stuff going on between China and the U.S., as people are going to ask more and more, is it, is it finally here? And then you're going to see some kind of drop in the stock market, which is going to be exciting for buyers, but completely uninteresting for sellers and is going to result in a slowdown in in the M&A market for some period of time until people's price expectations are reset. Now, I think everybody at the end of the day right now is going to say it's not happening yet. And we've got another three or six or nine months of a lot of activity. So, John, just in terms of valuation, U.S. deal volumes down in the first half of the year. How much of that do you think was reflected in just, you know, the buyers not wanting to pay where sellers are? We might be, you know, given low interest rates and lots of talk about uh, asset uh, bubble values and things like that. How much has valuation been a problem? I think it's more been a problem of less attractive assets generally being on uh, being on the, on the market at this point in time. I think at the end of the day, people are used to and open to paying very full prices for good assets. So I kind of don't think it's been a valuation question as much as an inventory question. But who knows? We'll find out. 
All right, we're going to leave it on that note. John, thank you, thank you. John Reese, he is head of global M&A at White & Case, uh, joining us on the phone in New York City. And I thought it was interesting, Paul, on a day where one of the stories uh, on our deal menu is uh, about DuPont gearing up for another $20 billion-plus divestment that could become one of the chemical industry's biggest transactions yes. this year. So some of those big guys, you continue to see them pair back uh, in terms of entities that maybe are not st- – considered strategic, right? Yeah. Uh, and so they're selling off business, and that would be a big one in yeah. terms of getting and, rid of. And it seems like every Monday we come in, there's big deals to yeah. talk about, oftentimes in the healthcare space. I think, how, how many times can these companies, you know, uh, how much more combinations can we see in the healthcare space? But lots of M&A there, which is one of the areas that, that, that John highlighted. Ah, freedom. Uh, And that also means freedom of your information, or at least I should say having privacy issues. Um, There are several stories, this will all make sense in a moment, several stories in the magazine this week looking at the tech lash that is underway. This set of stories explains what the internet has become, how it got there, how to push back, and how to hide from Silicon Valley. Felix Gillette wrote one of those stories, his story, about how the information superhighway became transformative, lucrative, and a hostile Toxic mess. There's yes. a headline for you. Felix joins us along with Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Stories. First of all, I do want to start with you, Joel, because I love this series of stories, Felix uh, among them. And I just think, what were you guys thinking? Uh, it's a, first of all, great beach read, but I think it's so smart for everyone to we, read. We think about Zeitgeist a lot, and there's this, um, I wouldn't even call it low level, like mid level to high level uh, hum and drum beat about tech clash and sort of the the privacy that we've all given up uh in order to have some great tools to be honest with you uh felix's story fit into sort of this package because it really is the foundation upon which the internet has been as we know it has been based so so felix yes I'm talking about section 230. Sounds yes. so sexy. Take me back to the 90s. How <laughs> yes. did we how did we end up in this mess? I mean, I think that, you know, in many ways the secret to understanding how we got here is to go back and understand this story. And it gets back to the 1995 this early debate about how should the internet be regulated. And in 1995 there was a group of uh people, you know, senators who were like, "Okay, we have this new technology coming and we need to set up rules." similar to what's on TV, the radio, uh, and telephones to make sure that, you know, kids aren't being exposed to harassment, pornography, uh, dangerous material on the internet. And the way to do that is to set up some fines, some possible prison time, and to put up some really strict rules. And there was another group that came along and said, yeah, you know, this is kind of a new thing, and maybe over-regulating that at the beginning is not going to be such a good idea. And the better way to do this is to allow the tech companies to regulate themselves. And out of that debate... did that work out well. (laughs) Fast forward to today. But hold on there. There's 26 words. Yeah. So the most important thing that came out of this whole messy debate was a 26-word statute, which was a tiny little amendment crammed into this giant telecommunications reform bill that essentially said internet service providers cannot be held liable for the vast majority of things posted by their users. And it seemed like such a small and innocuous statute amendment when it was first passed. Eh, not so much, as and Joel would say. <laughs> in fact, most people ignored it. I mean, that's kind of what's wild is that you go back to read the coverage at the time, nobody was even thinking about this. And yet, fast forward to the present day, and people say this is 
what created the internet. This big te- is the and reg- also big tech safe harbor. I love that yeah. phrase that you put you in You wouldn't story. have social media without this law because it would be too risky for anybody to post all this user-generated content. Uh, you wouldn't have... And, the- th- and that gets to the fact that they would basically have to take responsibility for the content on their platforms. And right now... They like can a publisher. Of, like a publisher does. Yeah. And right now they can kind of say, nope, right. we're just enabling free speech. Right. And take it up with the users. You know, Those crazy there. cat videos? Yeah, so, not the, mine, not mine. Yeah, so there's harassment worse, going obviously. on. There's a misinformation campaign. Ultimately, right. platforms can kind of say, no, it's not us. Take it up with the user. And the problem with that is that, you know, in over the years, what's happened is that with the spread of anonymity and pseudonymity, mm-hmm. a lot of times many web users are kind of beyond the reach of anybody to, re- to get to. And so it creates this kind of vacuum. And over time, you know, originally... This this law became beloved in Silicon Valley, and everyone said, "Oh, this is the you know with the, this is such a valuable law to allow the, you know the U.S. to dominate the global internet industry." But recently, as part of this back, uh, ta- backlash against the tech big tech that we've been talking about, uh, this law has basically come under siege in D.C. Yes, right? uh, there's senators, conservative senators, who are saying. They were upset with Google and saying, oh, you know, you're censoring conservative viewpoints on YouTube and in search results. And that violates the spirit of Section 230, which was based on a kind of neutrality. We we're going to we weren't going to treat you as a publisher, but now you're acting with editorial control. And there's also liberals who are upset that saying, you know, you're using this law to shield yourself from the bad behavior Worst behavior of your users. Paul, you know a thing or two about this. How, <laughs> how, what are we looking at in terms of change? About, yeah. yeah. Um, how vulnerable uh, is this? Uh, the, in, the investors are saying nothing's going to change, that the, the risk is relatively, relatively de minimis. But what I will say, Felix, what's changed in my experience um, with, the, with the Internet companies is this is the first time really in the last six months, the first time in the history of the Internet that the Washington has really started to take a look at big tech. That's what's different. Right. You know? Right. And if you're going to put your sights on something, 26 words is a pretty <laughs> yeah, exactly. easy thing to target. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's a great read, uh, as is the series of stories that really, like I said, t- really takes a look at privacy and how the Internet can- got to where it is uh, today and some of the big players in there. Um, thank you. Thank you. Felix Gillette, yeah, really writer, cool Bloomberg Business Week, And of course, Jill Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. You can find this story in the magazine hitting newsstands tomorrow also at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, this drive to the close, I think we can certainly characterize today as a day of volatility, as Charlie Pell has been reporting all afternoon. The wild swings in the equity and fixed income markets. To get a little perspective, we welcome our next, our next guest. Mike Moray is the CIO of Integrity Viking Funds. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, but he is North, Ca- uh, North Dakota-based, so we made the long trip here to the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We appreciate that. Mike, thanks for being with us. Just give us... Let's just go back over the last few days of this week. You know, Monday, big sell-off. A little bit of a bounce back to, uh, yesterday. Today, just wild swings intraday. As a portfolio manager, how do you think about the volatility that we're seeing in the markets? 
thank you for having me, Paul. Uh, the recent uh, volatility is certainly um, you know, causing some angst uh, amongst investors, uh, but uh, we, we take a little bit more of a calm approach uh, w- w- when handling the volatility and really kind of stick to the process of how we manage our mutual fund. Uh, we, we invest in companies that have solid business models, uh, have long histories of raising their dividend, uh, provide that level of high current income as well as dividend growth. And we feel these factors can allow an investor to uh, maintain their exposure to the uh, to equities, even in um, you know volatile times or market pullbacks. And I just want to point out the Integrity Dividend Harvest Fund, which you are part of the management, right, and manager or co-manager in terms of of the fund. It's up about five point six percent, I think, in the past year. So you're beating. Most everybody, uh, 82nd percentile, so you're beating most of the folks, most of your peers in that category. I mean, it's all about the dividend play. So in terms of macro stories, you don't care too much? As long as a company feels confident enough to keep that dividend up, and we know companies have borrowed a ton of money, cheap money, and they're not necessarily putting it into capital expenditures. They're doing buybacks and dividends. That is correct, Carol. It's not that we don't care, but it's not a big factor when we're managing the funds. Uh, we know the the, fun, the, the particular uh, stocks that we own in the Integrity Dividend Harvest Fund you know, are going to provide that growing level of income. So even if we were to see a recession, uh, we feel that the, the distribution that we're going to have is going to continue to grow. Well, the last and, thing a company wants, right, Paul, is you want that headline crossing, uh, so-and-so cut their dividend. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you don't want right. that. Right. And, and what, what I like to you know, tell investors is instead of looking at your, particularly dividend investors, instead of looking at your portfolio's value, look at the, the income that it provides. And what we are providing with this particular fund is a, 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 a portfolio that income will actually grow during a recession. Even your value, even though your value might get lost, your income is going to grow. So looking at like a name that you've suggested or highlighted is uh, Coca-Cola. So, I mean, there's a company. I'm just looking at it, uh, Carol. Mm-hmm. Year-to-date return, you know, a little over 12%. Got a dividend yield of about 3%. That's not a bad way to make a living. So give us a sense of why Coke is in your portfolio. Uh, Coke's a core holding for this particular portfolio. It, it checks a lot of the boxes of what we're looking for. It's a low volatile way to get equity exposure. It's got a solid 3% dividend yield, and it has increased that uh, yield or its dividend 56 consecutive years. Right. Uh, so we have a very strong belief that that dividend is going to continue to grow on a going forward basis. Right. The five-year net growth that we have in terms of the dividend is like 6.2%, so pretty steady. Yes. Um, AT&T, which I feel like widows and orphans, right? We talk yep. about these companies. Like, it's, what's interesting about it is I think about dividend reinvestment plans. Like, go back how many years, and that was an investment strategy that yep. we used to talk about a lot. I feel like it's gotten kind of lost in the sauce a little bit uh, with kind of alternative investment strategies and so on. But AT&T is one of those companies that folks would say, you want to have that in your portfolio because check out the dividend. And right now it's just about 6%. Yes, and you know the, the, the story behind AT&T evolves around their, their cash flows, very solid cash flows that are allowing the company to not just fund its dividend, but uh, you know, make strategic acquisitions and grow and diversify their company. You know, so the, the, the share price has obviously been punished over the past several years because of some acquisitions that they made, mm-hmm. but we view these as prudent for the company to diversify those cash flows and continue to, to grow their business. 
So, so I'm, yeah, I'm just looking at AT and T again, up about twenty percent year to date with a uh, you know a five percent uh, dividend yield. So it's again a total total return story. How about like as a dividend investor who's really focused on dividends? You look at a company like AT and T with its huge debt load. I think it has the most debt of any uh, non financial company. Uh, how do you kind of get a sense of the security of your dividend relative to the debt? Almost $195 billion. Billion. <laughs> With a B. <laughs> yes. Right. And that comes back to their, their cash flows. And, you know, the, the acquisitions that they made, there's going to be plenty of synergies involved there. Uh, so, as, as you guys mentioned, a huge debt load, and they've taken on a lot of debt to make these acquisitions, but they're forward-looking. And, and when you have the synergies that, you know, they're going to get by, you know, having that media in the devices that they're delivered on, uh, it's, it is going to create a lot of synergies, and we're, we're very comfortable that they're going to be able to bring down their debt load. Mike, a fair amount of companies offer up dividends, right? And obviously you're looking for dividend, not just a dividend payer, but also dividend growth here. Coca-Cola, we talked about AT&T, ExxonMobil is also in your portfolio, Verizon Communications, 3M. How do you, though, then kind of pick in terms of those companies that do provide dividends? What are the other factors you're looking at? Well, we go through a fairly rigorous process, and we, we look at four different factors. Uh, one of them is beta. We're looking for companies that have a beta of 0.75 or less. Uh, we're look, looking at the dividend yield. We want a yield at least 25 basis points higher than the S&P 500. And then the years of dividend increase is extremely important because we want to buy a company that we are highly confident that they're going to continue to grow their dividend. And lastly, we look at market cap. We like to see a market capitalization at least $10 billion or more. That just provides us with uh, you know, a well-capitalized company. What's the last company you put in your portfolio? Last company, I don't know if I can disclose that because okay. it might have been after market close. But I will say this: we have been increasing our exposure to healthcare. We okay. see a lot of opportunities there. We've seen you know some pretty significant pullback with uh, you know the drug pricing issue uh, you know within Congress. But ultimately, we see some great opportunities there with names like uh, AbbVie, um, Amgen, as well as Bristol Meyer and Johnson and Johnson. Right, which are all in your portfolio? Yes. All right, good stuff. Have you been seeing money, new money come in? I'm just curious uh, about Yes, uh, slow quickly. trickle right now, large <laughs> slow value. Slow trickle. Large value has been a little out of favor because a lot of people are chasing growth. Uh, but I, you know, we feel that that's one of the bigger mistakes you can make as an uh, investor is chasing growth as well as panic selling. You know, and we kind of take that out of our process. And, uh, all right, appreciate your time. Mike, thank you so much coming all the way uh, from Minot. North Dakota. Is there a direct flight? <laughs> I, don't <laughs> I don't think so. Mike Morey, CIO over at Integrity Viking Funds. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.